Well, welcome to the Real Journeys of Success podcast. And as you know, my name's Rob Elliott, your host. Today, we have a very special man from Melbourne, Victoria, in Australia, Mr. Philippe Gouchard. He is an international award-winning industrial designer. He has a passion for engineering, and he loves turning concepts and ideas into innovative products. Welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Um, hi, Robert. Really nice meeting you today. Mate, that's great. Now, anyone from Australia will be listening to you and around the world, they're going, that's not an Aussie accent. Where are you from, mate? <laughs> not quite the Aussie accent, indeed. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was born in France. Uh, I moved a lot uh, when I was in I moved, I moved more than 30 times before I was 30, I guess. Yep. Uh, so I went to plenty of different school every year. Every second year, we moved from one to the other or one city to the other. Yep. Uh, but <clears throat> I spent most of my professional life in the Alps. So I started to work in Paris and then just didn't like it. And that was too gray for me and too, I don't know, sad, I guess. Yes. Uh, so I went to live in the Alps. Um, it's um, the second economic region in France. Yes. It's very dynamic. There's a lot of manufacturing and companies and it's close to Italy and uh, Switzerland. And so they, it's, it's a great place to be. Mm. And you're in nature and uh, you know so I was living in the Alps you have the mountains with the snow the lake so that was that was a nice place to to work okay so where did you study uh, I study a bit in France and um, a bit in Europe too and in Canada I've been one of those uh, students that was blessed to be part of um, um, a pro European program where you could have exchange between different uh, uh, um, universities or cities. So yes. I've been studying a bit in Germany and UK. Yes. But I study industrial design in Canada, and that was one of those big moments and those big revelations for me. Yes. Uh, and I still have very dear friends in Canada, and uh, every now and then when I can, I I travel over there to to visit my friends. Yes. And after Canada, I moved back to France and started my first design studio. So when you're at university, were you better at the academics or the social side? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I was pretty shy at the time, so I would say maybe better at the academics. Yeah. Um, especially because uh, when I when it comes to design, I I really I really thought or felt that was a real passion for me. Mm. So to give you a bit of background around that, um, it all started with the first trigger when I was sixteen. Yes. Both my parents are engineer, and they wanted me also to become an engineer. And I was on the path of becoming a mechanical engineer. But I was one of those disengaged students at the back of the classroom, yeah. disrupting a bit the classroom and the colleagues. Yep. And I was the B, B minor students. So I was doing okay, but I could do so much better. Not that I was dumb. I thought I was just disengaged and not really interested in all the curriculum. Mm. And, and my parents being engineers and they wanted me to succeed, they thought that B minors would not quite fit to enter the highest engineering schools in France. Yes. So they had me take a career counselor uh, test. Yes. And long story short, the test came by, the career counselor told me, well, you're not going to amount to anything. You're never going to have your baccalaureate. Forget about university. It's impossible for you. You don't have the brain for it. Yeah. Uh, maybe what you could do, the best you could do is to do something with your hands, maybe a cabinet maker. And if you're at the top of your game, maybe you can do a violin one day or something like this. Yes. And I was like, I love working with my hands. You know, don't get me wrong. I love the art. I love the craft and everything. But I thought, well, that's not quite me. Mm. And what happened is that I had a spectrum of skills and interest. 
that were all over the place. Hmm. And two years later, um, I was throwing a party. Um, uh, I was studying mechanical engineering. I was throwing a party in my place. And one of the ladies invited her boyfriend, who was an industrial designer. Yes. I never heard the term before. I had no idea what it was. But because I'm visual and I have some visual imagination, industrial design, I thought, well, it's probably someone who chooses or picks the, the colors of the pipes in the industrial facility. <laughs> So I was cracking jokes on the poor guy all evening and making fun of how useless his job was. Yeah. At the end of the evening, I just came and said, okay, apologies for the bad jokes, but what is industrial design? And his answer was, well, actually, I'm the CEO of a design studio here. So how about you come along and I'll show you. Yeah. And, and you know, there are moments in your life when you know you have to pay attention, your brain's on fire, your guts tell you, hey, there's something happening here. Yeah. Well, that was one of those moments. Mm. So to come back to your point being at the universities, because design was such a passion for me or such a good fit, Yes. I, didn't, I did socialize, but I spent a lot of time studying and having the good grades and everything. Was there any one person when you were growing up or while you were in uni that you can look back and say that that person was an inspiration to me? It's, it's very interesting. I had a question before and I've been reflecting on that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not too sure because my family, they, we don't have a lot of creatives in my family. I, I think I'm probably maybe the only one. So I'm a bit of a black sheep because, you know, they're all in engineering or marketing and sales or being a doctor. So, you know, yeah. uh, so, you know, a creative in that environment is not the best fit. This being said, my grandpa, um, he, he moved from Germany to France and he learned French by going to the cinema and, and being a salesman by, for all things. So having to talk to people without knowing the language. So he had, in retrospect, I think he had a lot of entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. And you need some creativity into that. Yes. And also he had an appreciation for beauty. So at the, the end of his life, he, was, he wasn't wealthy, but he was very comfortable. And, and he could buy designer stuff, like those beautiful lamps, the, you know, those beautiful hi-fi systems like the Lewy or whatever. Mm. So, you know, very sleek design and, 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 and there was art and so like real beautiful pieces of art, not the cheap stuff, like really, you know, mm. significant investment in art and, and design. And, and I think that may have shaped me at the time. It's like, wow, you, you can't do this stuff. You can sell that. You can create that. So I think it did have an influence on me when I was a teenager. So probably using a term from today, he was a bit of a disruptor. He didn't think like a normal person. He liked to think outside the box. I think he did. Um, I think at first that was probably by necessity. Mm. But after when comfort came, I think he could enjoy the benefit of that curiosity. Yeah. So you, you've, you've done uni and you've, you've, you've learned about this new way of uh, designing, and which yeah. is more than just lines on a uh, piece of paper on a computer these days. Yeah. So how did you get from there to where you are today? I mean, you are one of the country's leading people in your genre, but, you know, there's not many people that have achieved what you've achieved. And you do rattle the cage in a really, really good way, as we would say, using a sales terminology. How did you get from there to being the leader of your own business to being the leader of what you're doing? I think it came in stages. So the, the first discovery is when I was 22 and I started my business, yes. I realized very quickly that having um, 
understanding of mechanical engineer and being an industrial designer was mm -hmm. definitely a point of difference. Yes. Um, so what it meant is that when I was um, designing for my clients, I would understand how to manufacture. So I would incorporate that knowledge into the design itself. Mm. And you've probably heard of stories of designers. There are plenty of there where they did something that looks beautiful, but it's impossible to manufacture. And if so, it's so expensive that no one can afford the product. And, and I had those stories. Yeah. I remember when I was 22, I, I visited one of the companies I wanted to, to work for. Yes. And the CEO was waiting for me, like really. So I arrived for the appointment and said, okay, come with me, I'll show you something. So we go into the, the warehouse. He said, okay, this is a mold that's been created by a designer that never worked. It's tens of thousands of dollars that you guys wasted. I said, yeah, that's his, you know, but I'm different. I understand what a mold is. I understand draft, I understand injection molding and everything. So I bet we can do something together. Yes. So that gave me an edge. But I also realized very quickly that working, especially with entrepreneurs, and small to medium companies, that there were two things missing from what I studied. One is marketing and the other is business model. Yes. And that's something that I integrated in my methodology from the very early days and I've been polishing that methodology ever since. Mm -hmm. But the idea is like you design a product, you design a product for a specific market, a specific experience. And even though that could be a good fit, it doesn't mean that you have a business. So you need to run the numbers. And if the numbers don't add up, you go back to your drawing board. Yeah. It doesn't mean that the idea is bad. It means that the execution you had is not ideal for the market and their purchasing power and everything. Yeah. So you look at those three major points. It's more complex than that when you dive into it. But roughly, design, marketing, business model, you loop into those three and you circle that around a few times and then you arrive to a product that has more chances to be successful. So uh, if you look at it in today's terms, we'll look at it, we call it pre-COVID as we call it. Was it easier to bring a product or a concept to market before COVID or after? Mm. I think there, there, is, there is a difference with COVID. And <clears throat> the, the difference resides in an additional tool that was there before. Yes. Which is e-commerce. Yes. And so I've designed in, in last year, I've designed a product for retail. Yes. COVID hits. And I realized that my product is good for retail. That would work. And at the same time, is not good for e-commerce. Right. Because it's, it has plenty of quality, but it's a bit bulky. It's light, but bulky. Hmm. So it doesn't go into an envelope. It goes into a, a parcel and that, you know, shipping costs have been higher because of that. So I, I need to twist that idea so that I can have the best of the two worlds. Mm. So I think that's, that's one of the major change or correction that I've seen uh, with COVID. You cannot rely on one or the other only. You cannot rely on e-commerce only because you don't know the rules can change. You know, Facebook can do something different. Yes. Apple is releasing a new OS and is going to disrupt the ad industry. And so you have all that happening. So you cannot rely on one thread only, yes. but you need to have both. In order to have both, that has uh, impact on the design itself. Do you think uh, now that COVID's hit and we're hopefully in Australia coming out of it now and mm -hmm. the rest of the world will be a fair few months behind us from what we can see, do you think it's exposed 
the designers, the engineers and the management of many companies of people that can't change or choose not to change? I think so, yes. Uh, I think that the, the, the bigger difference that I've seen during the COVID time is the mindset. Yes. It, it kind of makes or breaks people, I would say. Hmm. And we all have different circumstances um, that make our project or product or venture a bit more difficult because of COVID or not. Hmm. At the same time, if you have the mindset of, well, this is actually more an opportunity, what can we do? What can we change? Yeah. Then you're much more likely to succeed. Hmm. So when COVID hit in Australia, I, I've lost a fair bit of my project in, in probably like in 48 hours. Hmm. So that, that was a bit of, oh, what's going on? <clears throat> but at the same time, I thought, well, that's also an opportunity because I can really talk to people that will see, the entrepreneur that will see that this is a major disruption or a major shift. Therefore, there are new opportunities. And that's where I need to focus. Yes. And just a few weeks after I was signing a number of clients because of that mindset shift. I think it's the same for other employees, other designers, other entrepreneurs and everything. Yeah. I had entrepreneurs that in my mind had a promising market and they dropped their project altogether because they were in a fear mode or in a fear environment because of, of the arrival of, of COVID and the pandemic in Australia. At the same time, I signed an, uh, an, an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur that asked me to, to work for a device in the travel industry. Mm. And you would think, well, that's dead. And actually, my thinking was, well, this is fantastic because it takes a bit of time to design a product. Yes. So in those nine months, 10 months, or 12, I don't really know, we're going to design and refine a product to the best of our ability so that we yes. make sure that all those three items are you know, uh, well in positioned. And then the market will be different in 12 months. Like people who will travel or fly will have a different feel or experience or expectation from that. And because we have our pulse on the market, um, then we can know, we know exactly how to address those people. The second thing is that very few people will invest in the travel industry and do new products. So we'll be That's probably true. one of the few, if not maybe the only one, um, that will come up in the next few weeks with a, a new product in the travel industry. Mm. I was speaking to a couple of guys the other week at a breakfast I was at, and both in the same industry. One was doing gangbusters. One was complaining about COVID. And like I do sales training as well. And I just said to him, well, look, what are you focusing on? You can either focus on the past or you can focus on what's happening. I said, he's focusing on tomorrow. You're focusing on what happened 12 months ago. And he sort of looked at me ashen-faced as if to say, I don't really want to agree with you, but I have no choice. And it's so true. It's so true. So when someone comes to you now and they have a new product, what are the three most important things they need to look at before they uh, go to launch and to make it successful in a post-COVID world? Hmm. Um, one of the things um, that, that I look at is what I call execution, So, which means you can have a good idea or a good concept, but the way you executed that idea may not be ideal. Yeah. And very often people have an idea they do something with it, a prototype, and then they think, well, that's good enough. And then they continue, they carry on, they carry on, they carry on. Yes. And, and they never question, is, like, is that the best execution possible? Or, you know, and 
there's a point of really diving into that world so that you have the most simple product in terms of mass, mass manufacturing, yes. um, in terms of usage, some intuition, like, you know, you see the product, you just know how it works. Uh, mm. Few people do that very well. And there is a point of having that type of product. It makes really a big difference in the marketplace. Right. The second thing is uh, the market feed. Uh, I'm still, I don't know what's the term, but I'm still baffled by the number of entrepreneurs I see that never ever talk to the market. Really? Yeah, and, and I find that scary. So um, I had the example, I'm not gonna put any name, but someone that invested about $2 million in their venture and, and they never engage with the marketplace. They never ask, you know, is that a problem that you have um, would you be interested in um, if a product were to do this, would you, at that price point, would you buy it? You know, all those questions that you want to ask at some point. Yeah. They is, never that like a, is that from a sense of arrogance, do you think? I, I, I don't see that this way. The way I see it is uh, when an entrepreneur has an idea and start working on it, they have this very strong emotional attachment. Yes. And sometimes they can't take any feedback or they can't, step back because of that it's like it's my baby and they want to take care of it and let it grow and and they completely forget about the world around and especially with covid like the world has changed and will continue to change mm. the landscape we had a year ago will be very different from what we'll have in in a year or two time it's going to be very very different mm. so the market fit and the, the third one is again is the business model um yes. you, you you'll be also very impressed to see how few really run the numbers um, really? and, and it's not just, you know, uh, some do, but they, they forget like big things, like they, they have a, the cost of, um, manufacturing and they put a bit of a margin and then they, mm -hmm. they think they're good to go. And it's like, okay, what are your marketing costs? Yeah. Oh, don't worry. I'll go out there. It's going to sell like, you know, hotcakes. Like, oh, okay. You could be the exception, but you know, in general, you have some form of marketing costs. You have a cost of acquisition and usually it's around that. Mm. And if you have a percentage, well, it's more than a profit margin. So very quickly, you realize that they don't have a business. So a lot of there's a term that's used quite flippantly around industry called triple bottom line. But if you ask any accountant, any entrepreneur, anyone, you never, ever get the same answer. They just like to rattle it off. What's triple bottom line to you? So the triple bottom line to me is based on my personal journey and experience. Yeah. So what happened, I think I mentioned that I had this dual degree and I could execute very well and design products that would make money. So I had one thing covered, which is making money. Yeah. I also realized that I had this kind of a passion for sustainability and I was questioning my clients, like, okay, what do we do for that? Yeah. And at the beginning, that were, they were hard discussions. But eventually, I've been able to design products that were financially successful yeah. that would really... Um, know and impact the environment in a certain way that was manageable. Mm. So that was kind of a win, except that in that case too, I realized that the social impact, which is for me, the way you treat people yes. in your own, in the ecosystem of the product. So that could be your employee, your suppliers, the, the supply chain, the second tier supplier, the third tier suppliers, all the ecosystem that is around that. Yes. Some had business practices that were, I'm not sure what word I can, I can say publicly, but not the best of practices. Yeah. Um, know what you're saying, yeah. And, and I thought, well, you know, if you just make the money for yourself and, and just 
try to suck up as much as possible, it's not a very viable long-term venture. Like people just don't want to work with you. It's, you know, you, you win today and two years down the track, they say, well, you know, we had a better offer for another product and those will be on our shelves now. And that happens, you know, you've been in the game long enough, you know, it does happen. Yeah. So the triple bottom line for me is people, planet and profit. Yeah. Um, and it's important. It's not one is more than the other. It has to be a balance. Mm-hmm. And the balance is different from every, every venture, every business and everything. Yeah. Has there been, without mentioning any names, has there been an entrepreneur or business person that's come to you and that you've worked with that's truly inspired you and what set him out or her different from your other customers? I think there are a few. Um, Maybe one I will mention is a young entrepreneur from Melbourne called uh, Luke. Mm -hmm. Uh, His brand is is called um, Into Carry. And he's designing um, backpack and bags and everything from waste. Yeah. And and the whole design is based on how can you use waste and upcycle that in a a very clever way. And the whole design is based on simplicity, manufacturing simplicity, and the fact that it's going to be manufactured here in Melbourne. Awesome. Uh, That's one example. There's another example. I haven't worked with that company, but it's a a friend called Michael from Apparel. Yes. And and they do this uh, um, uh, subscription for socks. And and then you send your sock back and then they take it back and then they recycle it and then they make new socks with it. So it's kind of a virtual virtuous cycle. And and they they also have a focus on the circular economy and the triple bottom line. So that's two examples I have I have in mind. Awesome. So when if people are watching this and listening to this podcast and they're thinking of bringing a product to line, especially in your genre of uh, mechanical engineering or Mm -hmm. something like that. What is going to be the most important thing they're going to have to tick off, let's say, before they come and see someone like you? What, what should they be concentrating on post-COVID, considering we really don't know what the end of the year is going to look like? That's true. So for me, what's important is not so much how advanced you are on your idea and everything. Yeah. I, I started working with entrepreneurs at the point where they just barely had an idea. Yeah. So the question that they called me and the question was, what if we do a product that will have that type of material and would do this? Is that possible? It's like, let's find out, you know? Uh, so the idea could be at extremely early stage and we have a, a pilot procedure to screen that and see where, you know, where we can go and how we, how we can impact their venture. Mm. Um, f- for me, the, the qualities of an entrepreneur that I am seeking is more uh, maybe being a serial entrepreneur Mm. someone that's been there before because they have a different understanding of business Mm. and they've been there, done that. And that's a quality of tenacity and grit that I like to see. Um, And the other is something about trust and transparency and being like very, I would say blunt or very direct in communication. Um, It doesn't mean that you need to be harsh or anything, but it's just having this very direct communication because if we have that, I can take that on board and then I can update the design and, and, and make sure that we, you know, we go along and, and we, uh, yeah, we continue this in the same direction. Yeah, I've noticed honesty, uh, a lot of people can take two ways uh, mm-hmm. with that direct type of uh, feedback and all that. And a lot of them don't know, especially the younger generation, quite often take honesty the wrong way mm-hmm. rather than constructive criticism or a suggestion. 
Do you see that's got, that has changed now during COVID? The, the people's mindset when it comes to doing business, uh, there's not as much fluff and bubble anymore. They, they're working from home. They're more to the point and it's getting business done a lot easier and a lot quicker. I think for some, yes. Others, yeah. not quite. Um, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. But for some, definitely, yeah. I had really good conversations and very direct conversations mm-hmm. uh, with some of my clients. I'm currently working with a, uh, another serial entrepreneur and, and we have meeting that last 20 minutes. It's just, okay, this is this, this is the outcome, boom, boom. Uh, what do you like? I don't like this. We need to go there. Okay, fine. We'll work with those type of people. Yeah, and and... I don't have any issue with um, radical honesty or, you know, it's, I mean, if the intention is not to harm and, and, you know, be smart or anything, you can sense that, you know, if the person wants to be smart, I've been there, I've seen a few like that, it's different. But if the person is like, they are busy, then, you know, they're very often serial entrepreneurs, so they they Mm -hmm. run another business or, you know, so they need to go to the point. But the intention is that the venture and the project has to move forward in the best possible way. And you cannot say, oh, maybe yeah, you know, I like it, but I, when you don't, you know, because uh, three months down the track, that will show up and that will be a very ugly conversation. So yeah. it's better to know that upfront and then I can't cross correct. I got no emotional attachment to my own work. I'm here to iterate mm. and create so that my client is happy with what I can bring on the table. Yeah, one of the most important things we teach people in sales is just for you. Because people can smell a fake very, very quickly. Yeah, I would agree with that. Now, you're probably ahead of a lot of the innovation that's going around and you're seeing it in the industries and that that are changing far before the public and the the markets see it. Where do you you see the biggest advancements coming in industry now in the next couple of years? Hmm. This is Is it in manufacturing? Is it in... Yeah, Yeah, I think there's a lot happening in manufacturing. Um, And it's related to design. So uh, there are a couple of things that will happen. I think there are sensors and what they call manufacturing 4.0, 5.0, depending on which school you follow. Uh, <laughs> but um, th- there will be information from the, the, the manufacturing plants and the processes that will be very useful, which means that we can integrate that at the design stage. Yep. But there are also other things, like I'm really watching closely what's happening with 3D printing. Mm-hmm. And, and 3D printing didn't get the, the, the buzz it should have like a few years ago. We heard that everywhere three or four years ago, like, yeah, you need to buy a 3D printer. That was way too early. Yes. And the barrier at that time is not so much a 3D printer. It's that the barrier was the, the CAD, which is the, the, how do you shape anything? Yeah. You know? And you need to be a specialist. Like, you know, I, got, I got training in CAD and everything. And there are apps today where you can do things, but it's still a heavy requirement. It's like, you know, you need to learn to write in 3D. So it's not that easy. I think that the biggest shift will happen when we do uh, augmented reality and mm-hmm. then we can shape products. And, and we could even do that together in augmented reality. Like we could have a, some kind of a virtual clay and we shed that clay and do a, a product and then I can send that to the 3D printer. And, and then that would be very interesting in terms of... Um, uh, development and co-design, I guess. I, I listened to a recording the other week of someone booking a uh, hairdresser and all they said was a sales call. They said, listen to this. And we listened to them. Then they came back and said, what did you think of that? And, you know, they gave, everyone gave their... Mm-hmm. And no one knew that the person taking the order mm-hmm. 
was a computer. Yeah. They had the voice. They had mm. everything down pat. And I thought, wow, if that's what they've done already in that, as you just said, the augmented reality and everything else, everything it's not that far away. I think it's not that far away. Um, the, the key is to make that super simple and intuitive for people. Yes. And I have to confess that some of the tech people doing that are not the best in connecting with that level of intuition and simplicity. Yes. Um, but eventually we'll get there. We've all seen in the sales side what happens when an analyst gets hold of a spreadsheet. Yeah. And we yeah. just like it simple, straight to the point, and they make it, you know, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're looking back now and you, you run into yourself uh, <laughs> as a 20-year-old on the Champs-Élysées, yeah. what would you tell yourself? Ah. What would have been your biggest lesson you learned that you wish you knew when you were 20? There are so many. <laughs> <laughs> One yeah, thing so, stay online. So many. I think probably something along the lines of um, trust yourself. Yeah. Like you got this. It's um, it's like yeah, because you 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 face a lot of naysayers in your career, and like it cannot be done. Like I, I'll jump back a tiny bit. When I started talking about sustainability twenty you know, eight years ago, the people were mocking me and everything. It's like, like who are you? There's no use. We don't have time. I'm here to make money. You know, that's the type of answer. Uh, but. The, one of the most profitable product I've designed is designed with a sustainability uh, methodology. Yes. Because you can have the best of the two worlds. There's, no, um, there's no opposition between one and the other. Mm. You can have a highly financially successful product that doesn't damage the environment. Mm. And um, so mindset, definitely. Um, I could tell that myself, which is um, related to, you know, you've got this. Yes. Awesome. Now, for those of you who were listening to the start, you do live in uh, Melbourne, yep. which is in Victoria, Australia. It's got a river that goes through it, and right next to that river is some of the finest restaurants in Australia. Mm. If I could book you a table for four and I said, Philippe, in, bring three people, anyone you know, anyone alive or dead that you'd like to have lunch with mm. over a nice uh, Australian steak and a red wine, who would it be? That's a very good question, and I would need maybe a bit more time to think about it, but from the top of my head, I would probably answer my two grandfathers. Really? Yeah. Um, they they had life stories yeah. and wisdom that I didn't have time because I was too young when they died. Yes. Uh, I didn't have time to understand, appreciate, and contemplate on. Guilty there myself. And um, and and they were, frankly, they were two extraordinary figures, mm -hmm. really. Like I, I was very blessed to have two beautiful grandfathers and grandmothers and yes. you know, my family and there's these values and stuff like that that mm. have been carried, you know. But having conversation, like being now being 50 and having conversation uh, around a good meal, especially with those two, though, I think that would be like such an amazing conversation. We'll probably end up at 5 a.m. in the morning. Like it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Then after that, I'll probably add someone like Nelson Mandela. Yeah. Uh, because it's a story of resilience. Yes. It's a story of being human. It's a story of love in some ways. Like there's no resentment in the action he took uh, when he was in power. He could have done things mm. and he didn't do because he's 
he has forgiveness. He had a, a bigger heart. And I'm not saying everything he did was perfect and ideal, but that's not the point. The point is um, he spent a lot of time in a position where he was supposed to be broken by this system and, and he didn't. Yeah. And, and there's something about the resilience and, and how you can turn into being a, a better human being after that experience mm. that didn't break you, but revealed you like a diamond, actually. Yeah. And I, I thought that would be also like a very beautiful and long also conversation. Oh, mate, that's awesome. Um, and, and the fourth, I'm not too sure. Uh, I would like to include a woman, uh, but I'm not too sure. Um, you include one, you're going to offend another. That's probably, yeah, there's, um, I, I like meditation. So there's um, a woman that I, I read a few of her books called Pema Children. Mm. Uh, she was a Buddhist nun. Mm. She has a wealth of wisdom. Mm. And, and I remember years ago when I was reading her books and it felt like this kind of warm, cozy blanket of love surrounding you as you read that it's like how do you do that like there's there's some some warmth in in this and the, you know there's a difference between the love of a mother and the love of a father it's different type of energy True. and she has this kind of very beautiful feminine energy and i think that would be really interesting and she's you know she's a bit old so she has a lot of life experience she's seen a lot and i think that would be a very that would be a beautiful conversation too so what is it, I hear so many uh, leaders around the world, in doesn't matter, whatever genre, talk about the value of meditation. Yeah. What is it about meditation that you think people like yourself and other leaders around the world are, are drawn to? So for me, there are many, many types of meditations, yeah. um, and especially in the West now we have um, like, scientific meditations and stuff like that. And I'm not necessarily a big fan of that because I found that very transactional. Mm. And by nature, transactional meditation is, is, is doomed to fail. That's, that's really how I think. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> my view on meditation, the, the principle of meditation is awakening, which is knowing your ego so well that your ego dissolves or you know it so well that it doesn't bother you anymore, mm. which means that your ego is not there. Your sense of self is 100% there. Yeah. And you, what you're meant to do in this planet then just reveals and then you can really act that there. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's my views on meditation. And I, I meditate every day, every single day. I haven't missed a day in like maybe oh, 10 years or something. It's, it's just part of who I am. <clears throat> for me, it's probably the best way to know yourself. May I ask how long you meditate for? It depends. Um, to, the average will be around 45 to 60 minutes a day. Mm. Uh, but there are days it could be more. If I have a bit more time, I can go to two to three hours. Wow. Uh, if I'm really, really busy, then I need to go down, go down to five because there are yeah. things happening. But I always take some time to, to meditate. Um, and so the point for me is like, if you know yourself so well, if you know your mind so well, then you know everyone's mind. Yes. Because our minds are very similar in many, many ways. We don't have, actually, we don't have that much difference between individuals. No. Um, we all love, we all hate, we all, you know, have jealousy and, 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 and greed. And, you know, we all have that. But the way we deal with those emotions is different. 
And when you understand that at the root, at the core, then you can really relate to other people. And that's what I find beautiful with meditation. It makes you more human. So if people wanted to find out more about who you are and what you do yeah. and what your business is, where do they find you on the web or is it, uh, how do they get in touch with you? Uh, one of the most simple ways to go on LinkedIn, you type my name and then you find me on LinkedIn. Yes. Uh, it's a very good way to connect with me. Yep. Um, I have a website, um, d2melbourne.com.au, where you can also book an appointment if you have an idea or if you just want to have a, a good chat. Yes. And uh, yeah, um, probably find me on social media too, like Instagram, Twitter, and all those. But LinkedIn and my website will be the. Well, for all those listening, I will put all those links up on the web on the uh, show notes as we get going. Philly, it has been an absolute pleasure listening to you today. I love what you do. I love that you are, you back yourself, as you say, and <laughs> you challenge everything that's going on. You deliver products, especially now that you're doing some that are going to be made in Australia. <laughs> this will go around the world. So I encourage everyone to pop onto those websites, have a look, and as we say, have a groovy day. Thank you very much, Philippe. Thank you, Robert. It's been a 